Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yoram Bauman is the world's first and only stand-up economist. He's the co-author of the Cartoon Introduction to Climate Change and the two-volume Cartoon Introduction to Economics. The 1998 book, Tax Shift, which helped inspire the revenue-neutral carbon tax in British Columbia. He uh, performed much of the work on Washington State's carbon tax bill as well. Is now working on a bill with Representative Joel Briscoe for uh, Utah. Yoram Bauman lives in Salt Lake City. He takes his comedy act to colleges and universities around the world, also uh, corporate audiences. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in economics from University of uh, Washington. Yoram Bauman, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, it's pretty novel. The first and only uh, stand-up economist. Are, are you st- continue to be the only stand-up economist? That's what it says on the Internet, so yeah. it must be true. <laughs> it's got to be true. Uh, so, now you've got a Ph.D., University of Washington, right? Yep. Uh, um, did you, uh, what was your life before you became the world's first and only stand-up economist? Well, I was kind of an academic, so uh, it was, I had an accident. So I went to graduate school working on my PhD in economics, and to blow off steam, uh, I wrote a parody of the principles of economics in a popular textbook, and uh, that ended up getting published in a science humor journal called the Annals of Improbable Research. Uh, and then uh, I performed it live a couple times and got into stand-up comedy as a hobby. And then after I finished my Ph.D., um, I guess two things happened. One was that my academic career, to be perfectly honest, did not go quite as well as I had hoped. Uh, and then uh, I had a video of the Ten Principles uh, parody that went viral on YouTube and got a million hits, and people started emailing me and asking me if they could hire me to do stand-up comedy about economics and politics, and I started saying yes. Um, and you can find Jerome Bauman. Uh, you got some videos on the Internet. You can find the website, standupeconomist.com, and you're on YouTube as well. Um, and I was a little skeptical going in. Uh, how funny can an economist be? But uh, you're, you're pretty funny. I, I was laughing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It turns out you can do comedy anytime you have sort of strong stereotypes to play with. And there are strong stereotypes about economists, you know, that were sort of hyper-rational and very money-focused. And so uh, I have a whole series of you might be an economist if jokes, you know, like you might be an economist if you don't read human interest stories because they don't interest you. Uh, you might be an economist if you've ever gone to a bank in the hopes of getting a date. Uh, you might be an economist if you adamantly refuse to sell your children because you think they'll be worth more later. So, uh, you know, things like that. And then, there's, you know, I, I do political jokes, and uh, there's certainly plenty to make fun of there as well. I wonder if you, I, I was loving your uh, t- talk on politics, and this was, uh, it was a few years ago, so I'd, I wonder if you've updated this for the Trump era, but uh, you were in Seattle in this video. You divided the audience between left-wing and right-wing. You, you had to assign them, because in Seattle it's all left-wing, right? That's, that's correct. <laughs> uh, but you mentioned you've been uh, in Texas I, previously, so maybe there you'd, you had to do the opposite. <laughs> That's right. So it it actually is it is a routine that I still do, and it is a routine that works no matter uh, no matter what the audience is. It works for left wing audiences. It works for right wing audiences. It works for mixed audiences. And most folks like as long as you're making fun of everybody kind of equally, then um, you know they can they can they can go along with uh, they can go along with the humor. Uh, I don't want you to use up all your material here, but I, I was especially struck. But I think this is still the case. Uh, you you assigned people in the middle of swing voters, and you essentially told them, uh, you know, all this uh, specifics there in, in that routine was the budget deficit. All this is your fault. Yeah, well, it kind of is. You know, I mean, you've got people who want to they they want to you know spend like Democrats and tax like Republicans, uh, and, and and so and then they're surprised that that you end up with a budget deficit, which is. Um, you know, kind of like going to the doctor for your checkup, and the doctor tells you you've been putting on weight, and the left side of your brain says, hey, I guess I better exercise more, and the right side of your brain says, hey, I guess I better stop eating so many donuts, and the middle part of your brain says, hey, I guess I better get a new doctor. <laughs> right? I mean, there's there's a part of um, there's a part of the political situation that we're in that, uh, that I, I think ultimately needs to be, you know, placed at, at the... Uh, at the feet of the voters, where you know voters aren't consistent about what they want. Do you want 
uh, more services and kind of a bigger government and a bigger tax burden, or do you want smaller government with, with fewer services? But you can't sort of pick and choose and say, hey, I want low taxes, but I also want high services. Like, nothing, the world doesn't work that way. And uh, you, you were kind of poking fun at low information voters as well, and uh, I think at various times maybe all of us have have uh, have been there. I, I would preface that by saying, or I guess whatever the ops afterward at that by saying, you know, do vote, <laughs> but uh, but pay yeah, attention, voting, right? Vote, voting is good, but my line about swing voters is that they're sort of, you know, they're clueless and they're apathetic. They're so clueless they don't know what apathetic means, <laughs> and they're so apathetic they can't be bothered to look it up. Uh, and then, but then every four years they determine the fate of the free world. Uh, so you know, democracy is a democracy. When you think about it, is really kind of this an amazing thing. <laughs> One more thing on on this. Um, I was just talking to a friend. Oh, this was quite recently, and they asked me, "Well, what what's a libertarian?" I, I don't understand libertarians. And they, you talk about this <laughs> this routine. What a libertarian is. Yeah. So you got you got kind of a uh, uh, you know you got right wing libertarians, and they want everybody to be free to use guns and then you've got left-wing libertarians and they want everybody to be free to use drugs uh you know on both ends of the libertarian spectrum uh want to abolish social security and and medicare which i think makes total sense right because how many people are going to make it to 65 when the world is full of you know meth fiends with machine guns (laughs) uh it is kind of interesting when if you go far enough in one direction along the political spectrum it's sort of like a circle like it wraps back around and connects up with the other side. Um, you know, like you've got sort of, I don't know, I guess I would say you've got kind of climate skeptics on the far right, and then you've got the anti-vaccine people on the far left. And, um, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of similarities when you get far enough away into the fringes. It might be, a, you know, I don't know, in an odd way, a prescription for our divided world. Maybe, you know, some of those commonalities on the fringes, maybe we could bring them, at least the principles behind them, bring them to the center. I don't know. Boy, that would be nice, wouldn't it? It, it would be, yeah. It, because, <laughs> because in a certain way, you know, in the, uh, you know, the far left, far right libertarians, the, the common principle is, is freedom, right? Let me alone. Let me do what I want. Yeah, and there definitely is, a, there's, a, there's a strain of that um, uh, kind of running, that runs throughout the um, throughout the body politic it's just a matter of how far how far do you want to push it and then you know, I, I i spent a bunch of time working on air pollution issues and climate change and um you know you can say leave me alone but uh actually you know an accurate reflection of libertarian philosophies wouldn't wouldn't say that hey we should just be free to go ahead and destroy the environment and people should be free to to you know, uh, contribute to climate change because you're damaging uh, another person. And, and, you know, libertarian philosophy is very strong on the idea that, you know, my my, my rights sort of end at your nose. If I'm going to, you know, be punching you, then that's not that, that's not consistent with with uh, with libertarian principles. And there's an extent to which if you look at the research on, you know, lost days of work in school, on health impacts of, of air pollution, that that there's uh, serious harm being done to, to other folks if, if we um, if we just kind of have this laissez-faire free market approach to, to polluting uh, the environment. By the way, uh, economics and politics are quite closely linked, are they not? You just demonstrated that there, applying economic uh, you know, theory uh, to political philosophy. Well, there's there, yes, there's certainly a, um, uh, economists would like to have influence in the public policy process, and sometimes I suppose they do, although it's not really evident at the moment from our national political situation. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, there, you know there are close ties between thinking about well what you know what kind of policies are good policies, and then thinking about the economics about how does this impact households and businesses, and what's this going to do to economic growth, and uh, and questions like that. Uh, so uh, just a few more things on uh, stand-up economist. Um, you, you got into a discussion. There's another video. Uh, just got an interesting discussion about um, you said, well, as, as a stand-up, you could never be replaced by a robot. And then you <laughs> then you bring up an example of of how some scientists are trying to automate humor. Yeah, well, I, I talk about in the routine how there's this whole series of apps that are that are. Uh, 
uh, like joke creating apps, right? It's not just like, hey, Siri, make up a joke. It's like, hey, Siri, tell me a joke. So I, I decided I needed to try one of these out because um, I was worried about whether I needed to, to find a, a, a new line of uh, a new line of work. And so, you know, I pushed the button on the, on the phone and I said, hey, Siri, like, you know, make up a joke, make up a joke about artificial intelligence. And it thought for a minute and then it said, knock, knock. And I said, who's there? And it said, A.I., and I said, AI who? And it said, A, I am coming for your job. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, but is you know, there. Hard, let, me, let me just tell you, for the record, I made up that joke. And yeah. for the record, it is not easy to come up with a new knock knock joke. <laughs> right? I mean, my five year old comes up with new knock knock jokes every day, but they make no sense. Yeah, They're just yeah. like, knock knock, who's there? Peanut butter, peanut butter, who? Peanut butter in the toilet, right? R- right, yeah. Uh, but to come up with a new knock-knock joke that actually does make sense, I'm, I'm putting that on my CV. <laughs> that, you, you know, now that I think about it, it is it would be pretty hard, a new knock-knock joke. Uh, what are uh, – that's kind of pushing a frontier, isn't it? The, the impulse, uh, you know, scientists trying to – Trying to explore humor, trying to get a robot or 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 a line of code to produce humor, uh, that's kind of a frontier. Yeah, and there actually have been. Uh, if you look at the routine on my website, standupeconomist.com, or um, or Google it, you can actually find academic papers where scientists do try to have sort of humor creating uh, computer programs. Uh, you know, and, and what they basically conclude, and there's one paper that goes all the way back to like 1989, and what they conclude is that, you know, they they have this program that, that successfully comes up with jokes, although they say some of them are not very good jokes, and they're sort of, a, a, you know, grade school quality kind of jokes. But this actually relates to, uh, there's something called the Turing test, T-U-R-I-N-G, the Turing test, which was this idea that, that you know, the way to, to demonstrate whether you've actually created an artificial intelligence, a truly artificial intelligence, was if you, if you had a conversation and you couldn't distinguish between the artificial intelligence and, uh, and, and the human who was uh, communicating with you. And so things like being able to have a conversation and being able to tell jokes, those things are actually, uh, they're incredibly difficult for, uh, for computers to do. And I suppose uh, every day I wake up and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and you reference there actually is a journal of humor research. Yes, there is. There's an there's an international journal of of, of uh, humor studies or humor research. Um, you would be amazed at you know academics were we get very very niche. So there is a niche for folks who are who are studying humor. Uh, and you know if I were to if I were to be able to live my life again and had to pick a different occupation, I'm quite happy being a stand-up economist. But if I had to pick a different occupation, like like being a psychologist who studies the development of humor in children, that just sounds totally fascinating to me. And maybe that's because I have two kids, two young kids at home. But um, you know, but the progression through like knock-knock jokes that don't make any sense to like why did you know why did was six afraid of seven because seven eight nine and like there's just the whole like cultural. Um, it's, I just find it total, totally fascinating. Well, you put it that way. I think you've convinced me. I, I, uh, originally, I was coming to it from the point of view of, uh, well, if you have to explain why it's funny, then it, you know it's kind of not funny. It's, it's kind of ephemeral that way, humor. Yeah, and, and it's probably true that if you pick up the, the Journal of Humor Studies, it's probably not very funny. That's true, uh, yeah. Right, right. I mean, academics can also sort of um, make anything dry. Uh, but it is, it, it, you know, when you, if you study like cross-cultural differences in in comedy, uh, comedy in different languages, like there's, um, if you've ever tried to, to explain like a, a knock-knock joke to somebody who's not a native English speaker or a why did the chicken cross the road joke, like it's basically impossible. Like people look at you like you're from another planet. Yeah, I, I've experienced that. Um, lived in Argentina for a little bit and before I got really proficient at the language, uh, I like to tell jokes, and it, it just didn't work. You'd, I'd have to translate it in my head. By that time, the conversations moved on, and some things just don't translate. Yeah, that's ab- absolutely true. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I sometimes consider, consider myself to be, I'm like a, an economics humor translator. And that's, 
come from the, the the comedy routines that I do oftentimes have some sort of academic content in them, like trying to explain economic ideas in kind of a funny way. And then, uh, and I've you know co-authored a, a couple of cartoon books about economics and a cartoon book about climate change. And and my co-author and I actually are just releasing uh, a cartoon book about calculus. Ooh, and uh, <laughs> and all those books kind of try to use humor as a way to guide people into uh, in, into a, a, a new set of concepts and material that that otherwise they might be kind of afraid to engage in. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. So that, that I mean humor can be very powerful, right? Uh, economics is uh, is called the dismal science. I imagine econ- economists uh, don't like that perhaps, but uh, and calculus <laughs> uh, boy, I'm going to go get my latest calculus textbook looking forward to that. But but if you use humor yeah. that that is a way in, isn't it? Yeah, and especially, you know, so I talk about climate change a bit in my routines, and um, it, it's become such a politicized topic that people sort of get their hackles up, or, you know, or even when you just talk about political issues more generally. But humor is a way to, you know, you, you connect with other people as human beings, and once you connect with other people as human beings and share a laugh about something, then it's a lot easier to talk about. Uh, topics that might otherwise be quite difficult. What's the reaction you get? You go to college campuses, corporate retreats, I understand. Uh, what what reaction do you get? You, uh, you talk about climate change, I guess, carbon taxes, that sort of thing, or um, economics in general? Well, so I'm mostly those, what I, what I do with those uh, colleges and corporate events is, uh, you know, I do a, a comedy routine. Um, if they want me to with the colleges, I'll also do sort of serious, uh, more serious seminars about my experiences working on carbon pricing and climate issues. Um, the corporate events mostly focus on on the comedy, but kind of what I've what I've learned from doing this professionally for ten years or so is that you know if if you make people laugh for forty five minutes, then you can talk to them about pretty much anything you want for five or ten minutes, and they will give you the time of day. Right? Like they may not they may not ultimately agree with you, but they'll you know listen with an open mind. And so I talk about climate change and why I think it's important and how there are um, how there are you know small government market-based business friendly approaches to, to tackling climate change um, you know and then I go back to, to telling people jokes and uh, I have a line that I sometimes use where where I thank the audience for you know bearing with me while I talk about talked about climate change for a few minutes and then I say but um, you know, I did this. I, I did my routine once for a very conservative crowd in Minnesota, and this fellow came up to me at the end of my talk and said that the stuff I said about climate change was the funniest part of my whole routine. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, a connection of some kind, right? Yeah. There. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if that fellow was buying it in <laughs> particular, but uh, you know, self, self-deprecating humor has some value. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've got I've got. Scars and stories from, uh, from, you know, from along the way, from the journey. Yeah. Let's take a brief break uh, when we come back more with Joram Bauman. He's the world's first and only stand-up economist. Um, he's author of several books, including co-author of the Cartoon Introduction to Climate Change, uh, Cartoon Introduction to Economics, and uh, let's see, coming out, Cartoon Introduction to Calculus. Uh, I noticed, Yoram uh, Bauman, let's talk about this l- maybe a little later in our conversation, uh, Cartoon Introduction to Digital Ethics. I noticed you have, is that coming out? Yeah, so that's actually a 20-page pamphlet that's available for free on our on my website, which is standupeconomist.com. Um, it was a, uh, a pamphlet that was commissioned by uh, the European Union Data Privacy Ethics Group, uh, for a for a uh, a big conference they had uh, last October, and so they hired uh, my my collaborator Grady, who does the illustrations, uh, uh, and I to to work on this twenty page pamphlet that was given away for free at the conference, and then we um, posted it for for free online, and that was that was a really fun project to work on. And you know, if you recall the events of the last year, there it was sort of the explosion of like, hey, maybe. It's not so great that Facebook knows everything about us, and hey, data privacy is really an important issue, and there are ethical, you know, uh, aspects to this. Uh, so that was a really fun project to work on, and it was also uh, it was fun to have something that we could just put online for free for folks to look at. We do have excerpts of all of our other books that are online. Um, 
but not the not the not the full books. Although I think some of them are available in ebook form. But don't 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 buy an ebook in order to read cartoons. You want to actually have a physical book in in your hands. Okay, it just looks better. Uh, the, the art's important, right? Yeah, the art is important, and there's just something about that tactile experience of actually having a actually having a book in your hands, and maybe it's that you can also sort of move it closer to your face or move it farther away. Um, and one thing that's interesting about cartoon books is that the like the, the the basic unit of a cartoon book is not a single page, but it's a two page spread. Right, so you open the book, and there's a left hand page and a right hand page, and it's actually quite important. To, to think about what those two pages look like together. Um, and that's something you don't get in a, in a digital book because a digital book is just going to have, you know, you're just scrolling through one page at a time. Um, so, for example, one thing that, you know, one thing that f- folks who read our books probably don't notice but that went into the books with a lot of love and attention is that all of the chapters are an even number of pages, uh, and, and there are always – 10, 12, or 14 pages, um, all the chapters in, in our books. And there are an even number of pages because in a cartoon book, when you're looking at a two-page two spread, it, you want the chapter to end on the left-hand side, and then the next chapter starts on the right-hand side. And if you sort of, you know, if you, if you mix it up then and have an odd-numbered series of pages, then, um, then it just doesn't look right. We're talking with uh, Joram Bauman, and uh, the place to go to learn more is on... on just about everything we've been talking about here is uh, StandUpEconomist.com. More following this break. I'm Katie Swain, the Director of Membership at Utah Public Radio, and I'm so happy to report that thanks to so many of you, we have reached and even surpassed our $50,000 fundraising goal for this fall. For many of you, this meant increasing a sustaining gift or making an additional contribution. Thank you for stepping up when we needed you. For others, this meant donating for the very first time and becoming not just a listener, but a member and a part of what makes everything you hear possible. Thank you for taking that step and making the conscious decision to not just listen to UPR and hope that others will do the important work of supporting it, but to join the UPR membership and become an active part of making this all possible. To everyone who gave and supported, thank you for keeping UPR strong. We remain committed to the future of public radio and know that with help from you, that future is bright. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Clear Recovery of Cass Valley for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download our UPR app so you can listen anywhere. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and I have with me for the hour the world's first and only stand up economist. That is Yoram Bauman. He has a PhD in uh, economics from uh, University of Washington. And as he uh, told us earlier in the hour, was uh, kind of your uh, standard academic. Uh, then he's gotten into this, uh, sounds like a, a fun line of work, the world's first and only stand up economist. Uh, he's been involved uh, with. Um, carbon taxes. He uh, helped uh, with the effort in British Columbia, performed much of the work in Washington State's carbon tax bill, and is now working on a bill with Representative Joel Briscoe uh, for here in uh, in Utah. And uh, you can find out more about Yoram Bauman at his website, StandUpEconomist.com. Yoram Bauman is a co-author of several uh, comic books, uh, Cartoon Introduction to Climate Change, two-volume Cartoon Introduction to Economics, Upcoming uh, cartoon introduction to calculus among those, and you can find out uh, find some of his uh, stand up routines on YouTube, or, or at the uh, website standupeconomist.com. Uh, uh, so, Yoram Bowen, we made reference uh, to digital ethics. I wonder if we could talk just a little bit more, a little bit more in depth on that. I'm I'm guessing, as with many things, there are trade offs. Um, and that, that's what we, I guess, it's a sliding scale we have to decide as a society. Well, and part of it is, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google, they provide all sorts of services for a lot of people, you know, connecting people and messaging and certainly search searches and things like that. Uh, and on the flip side, it's kind of like, well, how much information do these companies know about about you, and even if you don't spend a whole lot of time on social media, for instance, I don't, I don't spend a, a lot of time myself 
Um, but, you, you know, other people will talk about you or family members or friends or people who come to my shows. And, you know, and, and a lot of that is, is fine, but it's also true that uh, even if you're not on social media yourself, the social media companies know things about you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's gonna. I'm 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 still always weirded out uh, when the Google ads change according to what I'm what I'm doing. But but I've you know I've accepted that trade off. Yeah, and there's part of it that's kind of like, well, would I rather have them show me an ad for something that I'm interested in buying, or would I rather have them show me an ad for something that I'm not interested in buying? Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do Do you think? Uh, this kind of strays from the realm of economics, but into politics. Do you think there should be increased regulation for some of these big social media giants? Oh, so that's that's not really my area of expertise as an economist. Um, you know, I I think um, if we could go back in time, I think it was probably a bad idea to allow Facebook to buy WhatsApp, for example, or Instagram just because those would have provided competition. And instead, both of those companies are now owned by Facebook and integrated with, you know, the rest of the, the Facebook model. Um, I think some there's, there's probably going to be some sort of privacy regulation. Well, there there is a privacy regulation in, in Europe called the GDPR uh, that has been in the news a fair amount over the last year. And I was tempted to say that there's probably going to be some sort of similar privacy regulation in the United States, and then I remembered that the United States government is sort of dysfunctional at the moment, and uh, who knows whether or not that's actually going to happen. But it, it would be a good thing if we had a little bit of uh, a little bit of private, you know, regulation of digital ethics and privacy. So let's jump into uh, carbon tax. You've uh, you've been uh, involved in this in several several uh, places, right? British Columbia, Washington State, and now uh, sounds like Utah. What, what would the Utah yeah. proposal be? Uh, so I was a little bit involved in British Columbia. I was more involved in a, uh, the first-ever carbon tax ballot measure campaign in the United States, which was in Washington State back in 2016. Uh, we did not win, but we took a swing at the ball and uh, uh, learned an awful lot in the process. And now that I live here in Utah, I'm actually working. So I worked um, as part of a volunteer group that, that worked with Representative Joel Briscoe on a bill that was introduced the last couple of sessions uh, two years ago, we got two Republican co-sponsors, but both of them have since stepped down from the legislature. And then last year, it got no Republican co-sponsors. So um, some folks in our group, we decided that we were going to file a ballot measure. So that's what we're focused on now is the clean the darn air.org ballot measure campaign. So we are uh, starting to collect signatures uh, in Logan and, and around the state and uh you know, are 116,000 signatures away from qualifying for the 2020 ballot. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, it's, it's quite a few signatures you have to have together. Are you hopeful about this? Think it'll uh, definitely be on the ballot? We're excited about uh, we're excited about it. Absolutely. So you know, it is a it is a clean air and climate measure. So the the policy that we're working on is a uh, hundred million dollars a year for clean air, which is a problem. Certainly where I live in Salt Lake City, certainly where, uh, you know, where you are up in the Cache Valley, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's one of the top things that people talk about when they say why they don't like living in Utah. You know, a lot of people, there are a lot of rude things to like about living in Utah, but the air pollution is at the top of the list of, of, of things that people don't like. And, and there's things that we can do about it. And so uh, if we had more resources, so the bill puts $100 million a year towards uh, towards cleaning the darn air. And then there's also $50 million a year for rural economic development, because uh, in addition to having these air pollution problems, mostly in urban areas, but also in some rural areas, uh, there are um, economic struggles in, in rural Utah and are, you know around the country. And uh, $50 million a year would, would do a lot in terms of, of uh, boosting rural economies. And then the measure also does uh, some long-needed tax reform uh, uh, changes, like eliminating the state sales tax on grocery store food. And where does the money come from for all that? It comes from a tax on fossil fuels, which is the main cause both of local air pollution and uh, and global climate change. So the basic idea behind the clean the darn air measure is that we're going to tax pollution instead of taxing potatoes, and then we're going to take the money that's left over and use it to use it to clean the darn air. 
So uh, who specifically would be taxed? Uh, what uh, companies? Uh, what uh, Who would be taxed? Where would the taxes hit? Well, the taxes are sort of applied, what's called upstream. But ultimately, um, you know, as an economist, I'm duty-bound to tell you that they get passed on to consumers and households. Um, but households will also benefit from not paying the sales tax on grocery store food, for example. So there's a calculator tool that folks can look at on our website, which is cleanthedarnair.org. Uh, we also did an, an economic analysis that concluded that the bottom two income quintiles, so the bottom 40% of the income spectrum, are actually going to be better off uh, financially as a result of, of the policy that, that we're advocating for. Uh, so the, the carbon tax applies to motor gasoline. It applies to electricity. And so, you know, the prices will go up a little bit for gas, will go up a little bit for electricity. Um, uh, but on the flip side, you know, you won't pay so much for groceries, and we will have uh, the benefits of, of clean air and, and, uh, and tackling climate change, which are uh, important issues for all of us, because clean air in particular is something that affects, you know, our families, our children, it affects our health. Uh, it affects our economies. There are a lot of folks who, um, you know, tech companies say that here in Utah say that they don't fly people out for prospective employees. They don't fly them out for interviews in the winter months because if they fly in during an inversion time, then uh, then the prospective the prospective employees just turn around and they're like, no, I'm not going to, you know, if I wanted to live like this, I'd, I'd move to Beijing. Uh, so, what's the uh, what's the main purpose here? Is it to reduce carbon emissions, uh, or is it maybe both uh, to correctly reflect the costs of, of carbon? Well, the main focus of the campaign is is to clean the darn air. So we're really focused on local air pollution. It, there's a side benefit in terms of dealing with climate change. You know, the number one thing that we can do to tackle climate change is put a price on carbon and get market forces working to promote conservation, innovation, development of new technologies. And so we're really excited about the fact that that our bill takes us in the in the right direction um, uh, on that climate front. But um, but the main focus of, of our measure, as you can see from the fact that we're putting $100 million a year into local air quality improvements, is, is really on, on cleaning up local air pollution. What have you respond to? Um, there's an article in Salt Lake Tribune. Um, your your picture is there, kind of at the head of the article. Um, Heather Williamson, Utah Director of Americans for Prosperity, is opposed to Clean the Darn Air uh, Act. Uh, she says such efforts, carbon uh, tax efforts, drive up costs, she said, while having little effect on fossil fuels consumption. Here's her quote. People aren't going to stop heating their homes. They're not going to stop driving to work or school in the morning. In that case, emissions don't fall, but prices still rise. What's well, your response? So remember that we're also eliminating the state sales tax on grocery store food. So fossil fuels will cost a little bit more, but other things will cost a little bit less. And then I just think that, you know, in terms of basic economics, uh, she's just wrong. Like if you look at the British Columbia carbon tax, for example, which has been in place for over 10 years now, uh, the best economic analysis that I know of concluded that because of the carbon tax in British Columbia, per capita motor gasoline consumption is about 7% lower than it would have otherwise been, and the fuel economy of the vehicle fleet is about 4% higher. So people are driving a little bit less. Uh, they are buying more fuel-efficient cars. And there are actually a ton of things that we can do, even if we have, you know, quote-unquote, have to drive. You, If you drive a little slower, then your gas mileage improves. If you keep your tires inflated, your gas mileage improves. If you are driving a Toyota Prius instead of a Hummer, your gas mileage improves. Uh, so there's actually, you know, one, one of the things that, that, that's nice about being an economist, even though it's called the dismal science, you know, people oftentimes have, have choices and, and opportunities that, um, that, that they are, aren't initially uh, uh, aware of you know people respond to price changes in uh, in a myriad of different ways and that's one of the, kind of the neat things about uh about a market-based system is you see people uh respond in unexpected ways to, to to price changes and what we've seen in british columbia and i think what we would see here is something similar where if you had if fossil fuels were a little bit more expensive um then 
yeah, people are going to still drive, but they might drive a little differently. They might drive different vehicles. They might do more telecommuting. There's a, a, a bunch of opportunities that folks have to, to, to change their behaviors in ways that are going to uh, that ways that are going to benefit the environment and improve air quality. I just wanted to throw one more argument from Ms. Williamson. She says that if the goal is to raise revenue to help fund investments in renewable energy and then lessen the burden on low-income people, then we should do it in a way that doesn't create systemic dependence. She's She said we should eliminate subsidies and corporate tax loopholes, and she's worried that that carbon taxing could have an adverse effect on making of making government reliant on emissions to fund public programs. Well, I just think the evidence from is, is totally not there to support that. You know, you could look at cigarette taxes and ask whether governments are, you know, passing out packets of cigarettes at the middle schools because they really want the revenue from cigarette taxes. The answer is no. Right. Uh, I think you could make the same arguments with regards to alcohol taxes. So, uh, you know, we think we have a really smart policy here. We're going to have a modest tax on fossil fuels. We're going to use that revenue to fund some clean air programs and some rural economic development and also uh, reduce the tax burden in other ways, like eliminating the state sales tax on grocery store food. And we think it's just a really smart package. And um, we hope folks will go to our website, which is cleanthedarnair.org, and uh, and volunteer for the campaign and, and, and learn more and get on our email list. Uh, what else can you tell us? You've, uh, I've made reference, you've made reference as well, to British Columbia. What... Um uh, are there hopeful signs that this is working the way that uh, the, the you know the 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 writers of the bill um, intended up in British Columbia? Absolutely. It's been a few so, years. You know the, the the goal was really to reduce carbon emissions without you know quote unquote destroying the economy, and uh, and that's exactly what's happened in British Columbia. They re- have reduced carbon emissions. The economy is doing fine. Uh, British Columbia has not fallen into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and, um, you know, it's been so successful, actually, that the, now the federal government in Canada is talking about rolling out carbon pricing across the, the whole country. That hasn't, been, uh, that hasn't been an easy process if you followed it in the news um, with Prime Minister Trudeau. But, uh, you know, taking action on, on difficult issues like climate change is not something that, that comes easily, especially in Canada, which has a province, Alberta, which is kind of the Texas of Canada, right? Like that's where all the oil sands are. Uh, and so you've got a lot of different competing interests that are that are out there. Uh, I will say one more thing that's kind of interesting about the British Columbia carbon tax is that it was actually passed by a right of center government. Um, you know, they had a, a, a mountain pine beetle outbreak in the late 90s uh, in, in British Columbia that and historically, the winters had been cold enough that, that the population of pine beetles, uh, you know, was sort of decimated during the winter, and then they'd come out a little bit in the spring. But after the 90s, the, the planet warmed enough that, that they stopped. Uh, you didn't have such a, such a big die-off during the winter, and so you had this explosion of mountain pine beetles. And it really opened people's eyes in British Columbia to see all these, you know, gray and dying forests, that climate change was real, and, you know, they should do something about it. And so the the uh, premier, the equivalent of the governor, the premier at the time, Gordon Campbell, uh, he said, well, um, we're going we're gonna to take action, but we're going to do this in a smart, market-based, small government kind of way. And, uh, and, and that's what he did. He had a carbon tax, and the money went to reduce uh, income taxes in British Columbia. Uh, and the policy has been uh, tremendously successful. Uh, by the way, you mentioned um, the, a calculator that people can, I guess, uh input their information and see uh, if their taxes would go up or, or not with Clean the Darn Air? Yeah, if you go to our website, which is cleanthedarnair.org, we do have a, a, a calculator tool where you can you know put in how much do you drive and how much do you fly and how much electricity do you use. It helps you estimate those things. And then how much do you spend on grocery store food? Um, uh, and then you know it sort of says, well, you know, you're plus $100 or minus $200 or whatever it happens to be, and you, you'll get a sense of how it works out for, for your particular household. And we think that, you know, most households in the state, we're making a value proposition. We think this is value for money, where even if you come out a little bit negative, you know, uh, air quality is worth it. The benefits in terms of air quality for our families, for our children, for our health, for our economy, uh, we think that that's, that's something that, that, that folks are willing to pay a, a little bit 
more for if they come out negative with a calculator. And then, you know, some groups, especially low-income groups, uh, um, uh, we think that, that, that um, many folks in, in, the, in the lower two income quintiles are going to come out on slightly on the positive side. Let's take another brief break, and we come back. We'll have a, a brief uh, final segment with Yoram Bauman. He is the world's first and only stand-up economist. And as you've heard here, we've been talking about Clean the Darn Air initiative, and he's, uh, he's with uh, that initiative as well. Um, more following this. On the next episode of California Burning, we study how fire works and how we can predict its behavior so we have a better chance of keeping our wild spaces and our communities safe. If the flames are less than four feet in height, we usually consider that to be okay to be able to be there and be able to work on that. Join us as we explore wildfires with those who understand it best. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Pianist Andra Schiff calls this a finger-breaking piece. Stephen Kovacevich said he worked on it for so long he nearly paralyzed his hands. Coming up, Yefim Bronfman takes us beyond the strenuous side of Bartok's Piano Concerto No. 2 with a thrilling concert. On the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Yoram Bauman. He is the world's first and only stand-up economist. He's a co-author of several books, Cartoon Introduction to Climate Change and Cartoon Introduction to Economics. Cartoon Introduction to Calculus is coming out. Um, and he was somewhat involved in the revenue-neutral carbon tax in British Columbia, more involved in the effort in Washington, and uh, now uh, worked with uh, Representative Gerald Briscoe in Utah um, in, in an effort, I think, last year, right? Or earlier this year? Yeah. Um, and uh-huh. and uh, now uh, an initiative is what they're attempting, a Clean the Darn Air initiative, trying to get that on the ballot. You can find out more about that at uh, cleanthedarnair.com, is it? Uh, networks, cleanthedarnair.org, but yeah, .com will no, Okay, great. Um, so I wanted to uh, talk about, you had, um, I Googled you up and uh, uh, on the sightlineinstitute.org, uh, not sure even who, what they are, uh, you had some articles, and um, I'm interested in this. Number one question from progressives about revenue-neutral carbon taxes, and number one question from conservatives about revenue-neutral carbon taxes, it, uh, it, I was surprised to learn that it was the same question. Well, ultimately, everybody wants to know sort of, uh, you know, how much is this going to cost me and where does the money come from and where does the money go? Uh, I guess it's the same question, different reasons, right, behind that. Yeah, so there's, um, you know, everybody has their own ideas about, about whether we should tackle climate change and how to do it. But, you know, for us here in, in Utah with our Clean the Darn Air campaign, we're really focused on things like, well, is it fair for people to pay sales taxes on grocery store food? Uh, do you want to invest more money in clean air? And usually people say it's not really fair to pay sales taxes on grocery store food, and they want to invest you know, more public money in, in, in cleaning the air. And uh, if you want to do that, then money doesn't grow on trees, so the money's got to go from come from somewhere. And having a tax on the fossil fuels that are the main source of local air pollution as well as global climate change is a – you know, it just makes sense to – to, to, to start there. And you've already addressed, anticipated my next question, but uh, maybe have you expand on it. Um, it's it's pretty heated debate, um, the, the, um, the, the debate over global warming, pun not intended, I guess, <laughs> previously. Um, yeah. for ex- well, for one example, uh, I would have thought uh, revenue-neutral carbon tax probably would pass in Washington, and, uh, you know, didn't. Um, Oregon, the Republican legislators have left town over climate change legislation. Uh, this can be a pretty difficult uh, topic to tackle. Uh, I wonder how best to frame this. Well, it is a hard topic to tackle. And, and, and to be fair, it's hard from both sides. So in Washington, one reason why we lost in Washington State back in 2016 was that we were, our measure was opposed by 
the state Democratic Party and the Sierra Club came out against us and the League of Conservation Voters, basically because they wanted the Green New Deal, right? Like they wanted, uh, they thought that a carbon tax was valuable just because it would provide a bunch of money for green investments. And our policy was, hey, let's have a carbon tax, but let's cut the state sales tax and, and put money back into taxpayers' pockets. And ultimately, folks on the left uh, didn't like that. Um, so it, it, it is hard all around. Um, I do think that people are, are um, across the political spectrum are, are, are waking up and realizing that climate change is real and, and that it would be good for us to, to take action on it. But I think even more importantly, you know, climate change is hard partly because you can't see carbon dioxide coming out of tailpipes, right? It's invisible. But we have a visible air pollution problem in much of Utah, Right, that's the wintertime inversions, and then we also have an invisible pollution problem in the summertime with uh, with ground level ozone that affects much of the state. And people get that; they get that in the in this visceral, uh, tangible kind of way. And that's why the focus of our campaign and why we're putting 100 million dollars a year into into you know cleaning the darn air is that that's something that 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 voters understand across the political spectrum, and they want action on that. Uh, if you remember the last legislative session, Governor Herbert asked for $100 million uh, for air quality out of the billion-dollar surplus, and the legislature only allocated $29 million. Uh, you know, at the same time, they allocated $110 million for a parking garage uh, at the state capitol and some other improvements. And we just think that, that, you know, on the list of priorities, like, we need to take action on improving local air quality. So that's what our, that's what our measure does. And uh, you think putting air quality front and center on this, uh, I guess the hope is this will this will help to get it across the finish line. Absolutely. We think that that's an issue that, that voters across the political spectrum uh, are unhappy about, about the poor air quality in Utah. Because, you know, you read in the papers or see online every day there are issues with, you know, the American Lung Association giving a bunch of the state a grade of an F for air quality. Uh, you see impacts on, you know, there's an article in the paper about uh, uh, survivors of childhood cancer who go back into the hospital. They keep getting sick after they've survived cancer, and it's tied to, to the local air pollution issues. Um, you know, those are the sorts of those are the sorts of things when you read them that it, it really sort of it pulls at your heart, and you're like, hey, we should be doing more about this, and our proposal takes action on that. I think it's also true that there's a growing recognition that climate change is important. And that's not just coming from the left side of the political spectrum. I think you have Utah's interesting because there are uh, uh, high-profile Republicans, uh, Republicans with high profiles in Utah. So I'm thinking Senator Mitt Romney. I'm thinking former Governor John Huntsman. I'm thinking uh, former Congresswoman Mia Love, uh, even former U.S. Senator Jeff Flake, who's represented Arizona, but he's LDS. So he has uh, a high profile here in Utah. Uh, who who will stand up and say, hey, climate change is important and we should do something about it. And I think the policy that we're working on, that's a smart market-based, small government approach to climate change uh, and clean air, uh, we think that's the kind of policy that, that, that Republicans can get behind. So cleanthedarnair.org is the place to go to find out about this initiative. And uh, it's uh, standupeconomist.com uh, to find out more about Yoram Bauman. He's the world's first and only stand-up economist. Uh, so I noticed uh, on your website you're, you're going to be uh, heading out to University of Georgia, um, Reed College, some other places. Uh, so continuing colleges, I guess, and corporate events? Continuing to, yep. It's, it, it, people don't believe me when I say this, but this is what I do for a living. I do stand-up comedy about economics for a living. Uh, so, yeah, so I'll, I'll be on the road and hopefully doing more shows around Utah. Yaron Bauman, uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. It's that time of year again, the season we feast. We've chosen certain days to spend interminable hours thawing turkeys, swearing at pie crusts, and refining our bread-making skills, all in order to allow our friends and extended family to gather and stuff themselves silly. 
Sure, there's plenty of research on the established benefits of sharing meals within a community. From physical, eating together can improve cardiovascular health, lower obesity rates, and prompt more vegetable consumption, to psychological. Community meals lead to lower rates of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and substance abuse. But in the postcard perfect narration that often surrounds these meals, we don't often address the dark side. These events, for many, can be riddled with pitfalls. Scheduling the right day at the right venue, wearing the right clothes, bringing the right dish, saying appropriate things to the appropriate people, spending hours with people you don't know well, and frankly, a few you don't like that much. One false step and your holiday card moment may turn all national lampoon. It's happened to me, and frankly, I've had to ask myself hard questions about whether the risk is worth the reward. Archaeologist Brian Hayden believes that the reward of feasting is essential, because without these events, he says, we would be stuck as hunters and gatherers. From an ethnographic perspective, feasts are far different from the food and social bonding events we tend to generalize them into today. Traditional feasts developed as entertainment with ulterior motives and binding debts. Feasting historically was the way people created and maintained reliable social support networks. And it worked precisely because these were high-stakes political affairs. As anyone who has ever purchased a honey-baked ham knows, big meals can be expensive. But it's nothing compared to the cost of traditional feasts in some cultures. Feasts sometimes require up to 10 years of work and savings. And understandably, those who pay for them expect to obtain benefit from their efforts. This is the important part about feasting. Those who are invited are obligated to reciprocate. By accepting an invitation to a feast, A person is in tacit agreement to hammer out a relationship of alliance with the host. Failing to reciprocate food and gifts often can lead to warfare. We talk about the benefits of sharing a meal, and they are real. You put yourself in a position to strengthen relationship bonds, gain political and social support, and develop a deeper understanding of your social networks. Historically, and perhaps today too, This support was critical because social and political conflicts are rife in tribal communities. With accusations of infidelity, theft, sorcery, questions of inheritance, unpaid bills, and boundary disputes, in order to defend oneself from such accusations and threats of punishment, individuals needed strong allies within the community. Feasts were a great way to get them. So, if you are about to be accused of sorcery, pull out the good china and start Googling recipes for candied yams, because a well-executed feast may be your saving grace. Gather your tribe, negotiate your alliances, frost the sugar cookies. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.